So Genesis 38, this story is interesting because last week we were introduced to Joseph and Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and chapter 38 interrupts that narrative. It's not about Joseph in chapter 38. It's about his brother Judah and his family. And there are those that see evil designs under every rock and stone in Old Testament studies. And they say the reason that this story comes in the middle is because it was made up and they were just cobbling together a bunch of traditions. But uh, it's, it's not true. It is important for historical reasons because Judah and the tribe of Judah are going to be, of course, very important in the rest of the Bible. And also because there's a dramatic reason here that I will draw out a little bit more. And when you know your whole Bible and you know the whole book, then you, you realize how important even these episodes that seem to come out of nowhere, how important they actually are. But unfortunately, this is another one of those sordid stories of Jacob's children. And we've been seeing these increase as we've been coming to the end of Genesis. And obviously, I, I think in this room, everything's okay. But anybody who's watching on the live stream or listening, we are going to examine some mature themes tonight. Obviously, I'm not going to be vulgar as we discuss them. We're going to discuss them the way the Bible does, but this is definitely a message for adults as, as the one two weeks ago was. But what we're going to see is that Judah, the son of Jacob, is going to buy into the world's view of marriage, of sexuality, and the way I'm going to describe it tonight is that that idea is to make your body a commodity, which is something commercial, something to be bought and sold and traded and used and leveraged to advantage, rather than something that is holy and set apart for divine purposes. Leviticus 10 verse 10 said that we are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And your body absolutely is something that is not common, nor is sexuality, nor is marriage. It is something that is holy. It's something that should be clean. And the Lord tells the priests in that passage, you are not to mix those two things and take what is holy and sanctified and mingle it with what is common and normal and just like everybody else. And Judah is going to have to learn that lesson the very hard way tonight. And as we've seen many times in the book of Genesis and will continue, sin only ever escalates things, right? Sin never makes sin better. And sexual sin especially so. So I hope that tonight will be a reminder to us all to sanctify the Lord, to sanctify our own bodies for his service. I hope this isn't a corrective for anybody, but maybe it's, it's what you might call preventative maintenance. It's something to learn before the temptation comes so that you're ready for it. Or that when you're having a conversation with somebody, you're prepared to know how to answer them. And of course, we never know who's going to hear these messages. So I pray that the Lord will cause it to live beyond just tonight. As we get to the end, there's a wonderful story of redemption that this story only hints at, but we're going to spend some time talking about that as well because the Bible doesn't just talk about sin so that we can feel bad about ourselves. It talks about sin so that it can lead us to repentance and forgiveness. So why don't we read the first five verses of this chapter? We're going to do the whole chapter tonight. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Chirah. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. So we see at the beginning of this chapter, at that time. At what time? At the time that Joseph was sold into slavery. This is important to remember as we go through, and I'll pick this up again as we get to the end. The timeline of chapter 38 is more or less equal to the timeline of what is happening with Joseph in his whole story. So the end of chapter 38 is pretty close probably to the end of Joseph's story. So that timeline is important that Judah was the one who had suggested to his brothers, let's sell Joseph into slavery. Do you remember they wanted to throw him into the pit and kill him? He said, let's not kill him. That doesn't make us any money. Let's sell him here, despite Reuben's attempts to save him. And Judah leaves his brothers. Maybe he didn't want to be around his father who said he would grieve for his son until he went down into the grave. Whatever the case, he leaves Hebron, which is where they are. And he's going to go eight miles northwest to a place called Adullam. He's going to meet Chirah, 
the Adulamite. And you might remember the name of Adulam because this in 1 Samuel is where David is going to flee from Saul and he's going to be in the cave of Adulam and that's where his mighty men are going to gather around him. So that's the same location. It doesn't really come into this story, but it's good to make those connections. And here in Adulam, away from his family, making a new friend, he is going to marry a Canaanite woman. She's not named. Her father's name was Shua. And he's going to have three children in a place called Chazib. And we're not exactly sure where that was, but it probably wasn't too far from where we've been so far. Now, this is important because we know that God was not in favor of his children and his people marrying outside of the covenant family. Do you remember that Abraham would not allow Isaac to marry one of the Canaanite women? And then when Esau married those Canaanite women, it was a painful experience for their family. And so Jacob was sent away, among other reasons, to marry of the family of Laban. And now we see that Judah is going to marry a Canaanite. In Exodus chapter 34, when God first encounters the nation of Israel, he's going to let them know before they leave Mount Sinai, you are not to intermarry with those Canaanites in the land of the promise. And then in Deuteronomy 7, just before they go into the promised land, so the beginning and at the end of that wilderness wandering, he explicitly forbids them to marry Canaanites for two reasons. Number one, he says, they will cause you to engage in their sins if you marry them. And number two, they will cause you to worship their gods. They failed to do so, and that is exactly what happened. Similarly, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers if we can at all help it. So the Lord was not all right with this. But Judah will do this, and actually so will Simeon, although it doesn't come up here. Joseph is going to marry an Egyptian, but of course that's, that's a different scenario than what, what they are doing. And it indicates the further decline of Jacob's family. Remember we've been talking about that? That we're watching the spiral of Jacob's family away from the Lord and away from what is right. And here we see that Judah has accepted the Canaanite way of sex and marriage. No longer is this something that is supposed to be sanctified and holy for him as a member of God's covenant family. He's going to marry a woman, does not say why, but perhaps because she was beautiful, perhaps because it was an advantageous marriage, who knows? But the term I'm going to use to describe the way the world does sex and marriage and all those related issues tonight is commodification. A commodity, again, is something that you trade, you sell, you buy, you use, you leverage. This is the idea that your body, and therefore the use of your body, especially the sexual use of your body, is purely carnal. That there is nothing spiritual attached to it. Therefore, if that's what you believe, marriage can be whatever you want. Sex can be used. It can be used to barter. You can abandon God's design. You can pervert God's design. All that matters is essentially what you want to do. Whether that's you want to be satisfied in a physical way, whether you want to get ahead using those things, whether you want to control and manipulate other people or provide for your own safety, that those things are the only things that matter when it comes to the body. He marries this woman, for whatever reason, with no spiritual insight. And we're going to see, although it doesn't say it out exactly, they're not going to raise godly children together. He does not have spiritual insight, does Judah, because he's treating this like a common thing. Treating your body like that as a commodity is a rejection of God's design. It's a rejection of God's glorious plan. And we took some time two weeks ago to go into this in detail. So I just want to remind you with one very important verse. Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, talking about marriage says, did God not make them, that is husband and wife, did God not make them one with a portion of their spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That's so important. As God made husband and wife one, and we say, why? Is because God is seeking godly offspring. That is, that is God's way. The family, marriage, is God's way of preserving righteousness on the earth, of making sure that the young men and women that grow are being taught in righteousness. And so God sanctified marriage, and we ought not to be faithless to our husband or to the wife of our youth. Sex is a spiritual thing. It's also an emotional thing. 
It's also a physical thing. And anytime you remove or, or misplace one of those three things, you get something that is out of balance. Some people's sex is, is just an emotional thing or it's just a physical thing. And then there's some, another error that we're not going to get into so much tonight, that it is only spiritual. And therefore, any other kind of pleasure that is derived from that is somehow sinful, which is simply not the case. But what we do see about sex and marriage more than anything else is that it is holy. That it is never to be treated as a tool or as a bargaining chip. As a way of getting what you want, the way Judah was doing this year. The way of just getting your pleasure satisfied. And there's all manner of ways of doing this. And some of these I don't really much like to talk about, but you've seen how the world is, is it rampant sexual immorality and we have to call these things out specifically by name because even in the church even in the capital c church these things go on without any guilt in the heart of god's people unfortunately so this includes obviously first and foremost fornication which is sex with somebody that you are not married to before you're married it is amazing how common this is Having done a lot of premarital counseling and talked to a lot of people, this happens all the time in the church. And you can add right along with that cohabitation, living together before you're married. What is fornication saying? It's saying, I want this thing from you for myself, but I'm not willing to fully spiritually and lifelong commit to you. Cohabitation is the same thing. We want to live together. We want to be together, but I will not commit myself to this spiritual lifelong relationship. So I'll just give you as much as is necessary to give you without committing. Pornography is the same thing. You're just using your body to gratify the flesh. And this is on both sides, by the way. There are people that make money off of doing this. And there are people that, of course, spend money or not to engage in this kind of action. Adultery, of course, is, is so wrong. Even the world still kind of gets that one, you know. You should not cheat on your husband or your wife. And of course, the world will then also say, if you love somebody else, you should just get divorced, which is right along with the same thing. You're treating your marriage like something that is only there to benefit you. And the minute it stops benefiting you, why not just toss it out and get something else? That's not godly either. Nor is, as the new one that's coming along, polyamory, which is we just all get together and we have as much sex as we want with as many people as we want. You've reduced something holy and spiritual to something purely carnal. Homosexuality is, a, is in the same order as that. That I'm going to do it my way, the way I'd like it to be done. All these different things. These are all a degradation of what God has intended. Something that is holy and beautiful and wonderful. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. I get to, I get to step on a, on a tiny little soapbox for a minute here because of these verses, but they're very important. Let's hear them. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Joseph will set us a great example of that next week. Run, boy, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What's my little soapbox? My little soapbox is that I've heard so many people over the years, and more recently I'd say, using that phrase, my body is a temple, to justify their sexual immorality. I can do whatever I want with it because it's holy and whatever I do with it is okay because God made me this way. Which is the exact opposite of the point that Paul is trying to make here. Because your body is a temple full of the Holy Spirit and you're going to take that body which is full of the Holy Spirit and then engage in something that is sexually immoral? Well, it's my life. It's my body. It's my choice. The Bible says, no, it's not. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So don't just glorify your God with your lips. And with your actions and with your money, glorify God in your body. Your body is a holy thing. And this is something else we need to remember. That the body is not evil. This is something the early church had some struggles with. 
Because there's this thing called Gnosticism going around, that who you are is spiritual, and the body is just getting in the way. And so you've got to get outside your body to really find out who you are and who you could be. It's very interesting how some of those same ideas are attached to the whole transgender debate and conversation. That my body is somehow wrong for me. That my body is not who I really am, and we need to look at who I truly am in my spirit and on the inside. But as Christians, we do not believe that the body is evil. We believe that it is a good thing. All three persons of the Trinity have holy contact with your body. The Holy Father created your body. The Lord Jesus Christ himself shared in that flesh by taking on a body. The Holy Spirit indwells and empowers your body. And y'all, one day we're looking forward to the resurrection of the body. So we don't treat it as just a tool to be used. I don't even like it when we say, you are a soul in possession of a body. That's not quite right. We are, the, we are one thing. The Bible talks about not having a body after death, that you're with the Lord, but you're waiting to be fully clothed, it says. Right? God created you as one. I didn't even really want to get into that so much, but it's important to remember. You need to regard your body as something that is uniquely precious, not just a tool for your pleasures. And Judah fell into this trap. Rather than using his marriage as something to serve the covenant of the living God, he goes and hangs out with Hira the Adulamite and lives just like everybody else. And it's only going to get worse for him, as we'll see. So that's the first thing we're going to look at. The world sees the commodification of the body. The church and those who belong to Christ Jesus understand that the body is a holy thing that should be reserved for holy purposes. And it should not be bought, sold, traded, leveraged, or any of those things. So let's see, verses 6 through 11. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah has these three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, and he goes out and finds a wife, as, as it was done then. Father and mother would select the bride for their children. And we have Tamar, or Tamar, as it would have been pronounced. And the name means date palm, so it's a kind of tree. We maybe have known people named after trees or flowers, and that's who she was. And she is to marry his oldest son, Ur. It does not say whether or not she also was a Canaanite, but it seems to be what's going on in this story. You'd think that they would refer to her as being an Israelite, but it doesn't, doesn't really say. And it does not give us either what the sin of Ur was. But God puts him to death for it. Whatever he did, it was so wicked that God put him to death. And this is the first time in the Bible we see God specifically striking somebody down dead, except for the flood, of course. But we're going to see this again later when Uzzah, touches the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to see it in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira lie about the, the gift that they were giving to the church. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, when they offer strange fire before the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says that there are some of you in the church who are dying because you are taking communion in an unworthy fashion. And you read through that chapter. They were showing up drunk. They were keeping the poor people out from coming in. It was all kinds of awful stuff going on. So apparently the Lord retains the prerogative to strike people down for their sins. And we have a tendency to attach too much significance to that. And every time something comes, we feel like we've got to find the explanation for it. But it is good to remember that God absolutely does and can do that. He is put to death and God now has widowed Tamar. And the next thing we have here, this is an example of what is called leveret marriage, where Onan is told, go into your brother's wife and have a child for your brother with her. The word levir is brother-in-law in Latin. So leveret marriage is brother-in-law marriage. And this is where, in this culture, if a brother died, 
and his wife was widowed. The next brother was to take that woman as his wife. The first child that they had together would take the name of, of the first husband who had died and retain his inheritance. And then the second son would be considered the first son of the brother-in-law. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I sort of just explained it, so there's really no, no need to read it now. But at the end it says, the reason is so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was a way of protecting the widow, first of all. At this point in time, there were not very many jobs that a woman could go out and do. And it wasn't so much an oppression thing as much as we're living in the desert kind of thing. And so a woman would be brought into a man's house. And if the man died, the way to take care of her was for her to stay in the family and for the next unmarried brother to step up and to marry her. Also, it was a way of honoring the dead. So if you were to die and not have a name, the idea is that your name is perishing from the earth and that nobody's going to remember you. Well, no, we're going to make sure you're remembered. And this first son is going to be yours, so to speak, even though technically it wasn't. And to, you, could, you could refuse to do this. You didn't have to do this. But it was a shameful thing to do. And if you did, it said that the woman who you were refusing to marry was supposed to come and publicly spit in your face so that everybody would know that this man was unwilling to take care of his family like he was supposed to. Of course, this is very different from the way we do things, but this is the way that the Lord had it done. And uh, you can see this in Ruth chapter 4, for example, that uh, Ruth was, of course, widowed. She comes back to Israel, and Boaz is going to marry her. It's a slightly different situation. That's more what's called the kinsman redeemer, but you get the same idea. This is what the Sadducees asked Jesus about in Matthew 22, remember? They said, a woman was married to seven different brothers, and then she died, and now she's in heaven, so whose husband is she? Remember that? They're referring to this same law, leveret marriage. Now, this, to us, we go, well, that doesn't seem very romantic, but it was actually a very loving thing to do. I'm not going to have you just be kicked to the curb. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to be so selfish that I've got to go out and find my special someone that I'm going to love you like I ought to. I'm going to love my brother and make sure that he is honored and remembered in this culture. This was a way of loving, honoring. It was a holy use of the body. But here comes Onan, the second born. And he, it says, resents the fact that that first child will not be his. So their first child, let's say his name was John, would not be known as John, the son of Onan. He would be known as John, the son of Ur. And he resents that. He also resents the fact that that child now splits the inheritance back up into three pieces. He figures if I can not have a child with her, the inheritance will remain in two pieces and I'll get some more. So it's a very selfish thing that he's doing. And so, of course, in, in one of these adult passages in Scripture, when he is having intercourse with Tamar, he ejaculates outside. The idea is, I am not going to allow you to have a child by me. It was an incredibly wicked thing because not only is he refusing to have a child with her, he's willing to go in and have sex with her. So it's, it's almost an abusive thing that's going on here. This is his wife now. It wasn't just that they were going to have a child. This was his wife. And now he is also commodifying the marriage bed together. He refuses to impregnate her. Also, I should mention just briefly, somewhere along the line in the church, the term onanism or the sin of onan has been referred to as masturbation. That is not what's going on in this story. Uh, what's going on here is something else. And we, we should be very careful to not assign things to passages in the Bible that have nothing to do with them. So that, that's just a little note that we can move on from, but it is important to remember. His wickedness here which he says was more wicked than that of his older brother. We don't even know what that was. But you can see his wickedness was in treating their marriage like a burden, being willing to enjoy the physical pleasures of it without taking any of the responsibility, thinking only of his financial gain. And this kind of thing still goes on. Not so much just like this. We don't have leveret marriage today. But there are other ways of treating your marriage, treating your body, treating your sexuality as a means of gain. As I said, a commodity. And there are men and women who refuse to give their conjugal rights to their husband or their wife as a way of maintaining leverage over them. 
Stereotypically, this happens where the wife refuses to give conjugal rights to her husband, but it also can happen where men will manipulate their wives in that way and emotionally torment them. Of course, 1 Corinthians has a lot to say about that. There are people who are willing to advance their careers through seduction, through fornication, through breaking up marriages, because they know if I can have sex with this person, they'll be willing to promote me, they'll be willing to put me first, which is the same kind of thing. You're using your body as a means of gain. Of course, you have things like people that go to strip clubs, prostitution, including pornography, by the way. Any way of using your body as a way to sexually make money without that marriage bond is is a sinful thing to do. That's closer to the sin of Onan than what we discussed before. There are husbands and wives that will deny children to one another. Or there have even been cases where women will lie to their husbands in order to procure children without their husband's knowledge or permission, which is, of course, a horrible thing. And even in the marriage relationship, when you're using your holy time in the marriage bed together as a way to do shameful things and put the other person down or to get some kind of blackmail on them, that happens too. Adultery, same kind of thing. Transgenderism is the same kind of thing. I'm going to use my body to get what I want out of it rather than to wholly sanctify it. This leads to things like abortion, where we were using our bodies in this way. I don't want to pay the consequences, therefore I'm going to take the life of the child. All of this is viewing your body and sexuality as a means of gain. God is not a proof of that, and he executes Onan here. We shouldn't take these things lightly. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Let marriage be held in honor among all. We honor marriage. We uphold marriage. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, which is don't bring all this junk into your marriage bed with you. And so we have this case now where Tamar has lost two husbands... She's been embarrassed. She's been shamed by her last husband. And now Judah sends her home. You need to know this is a cultural note. This was very uncommon and a very shameful thing to do. Once she was betrothed and brought into Judah's household and family, that's where she was to stay. They had much more of the the clan and the tribe at that time. So by sending her back to her father, it would have been a very embarrassing and shameful thing for him to do. You're going to give me back? You're not going to keep me here? And he says, no, just wait until Shelah grows up. But as we're going to see, he had no intention of doing that. Because what does he say? He's afraid that Shelah is going to die too. Rather, again, Judah is spiritually blind here. He's not able to see that his sons were wicked and that might be the problem. All he can think is there's something wrong with her. It's a very superstitious way of looking at this. So we're going to send you away because you're bad luck. In India, they might say you're bad karma. Which is, I mean, you can see how she's being humiliated throughout this story. Now she's got to go back and live as a widow, waiting to be called for when her future husband has grown up. But as we're going to see now in verse 12, that is not what's going to happen. So again, you see the commodification of the body is a, is a terrible thing. Verse 12, and we're going to read most of this chapter here to verse 23. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Herah the Adulamite. This guy again. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? They said, No cult prostitute has been here. 
So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. This gets worse and worse, doesn't it? Well, eventually Judah's wife dies, and it says after he was comforted. The contrast there is Judah is able to move on and be comforted. Meanwhile, he's sent off Tamar to live in this perpetual widowhood and never be allowed to be comforted. But he goes back with his buddy Herah to celebrate the sheep shearing. And we talked about this before with Laban. Sheep shearing was the most happy time of the year. It was a big festival. It was a big party. And Tamar finds out that he's going there. And she knows at this point, he is never going to call me to marry Sheila. And so she makes a plan. She dresses like a harlot. Says she covers herself with a veil. The Hebrew there is kind of interesting. Either it says he knew she was a harlot because she covered her face, or he knew she was a harlot even though she covered her face. Some of the cultural notes of this time say that a harlot was not legally permitted to cover her face for reasons like this. But it really is irrelevant. The point is, he believed that she was a prostitute. She sat at the entrance to Enaim. That's another thing that can be translated one of two ways. Sat at the entrance to Enaim. That's if you take the word Enaim with a capital E as a place name. There were places that were similar to that in Israel. Or if you want to take that literally, she sat at the opening of the eyes. So... Probably this was a real place, but there is also a play on words going on here. She sat in such a way to catch his attention, to open his eyes. So the idea is that she's not just sitting there waiting by the road, that she is doing something that is lewd and promiscuous to get his attention in that way. The book of Hosea rebukes the children of Israel in chapter 9 because during the sheep shearing and during the harvest, it was believed that if you had sex with a cult prostitute, meaning one of the, the priestesses from the temple of whatever God, then you would have a good harvest. So Hosea would reprimand them for committing harlotry, he says, on every threshing floor and at the shearing of the sheep. So this is probably why Judah thought this was all right. Everybody else is doing it. It's, it's basically Mardi Gras. We're all having a good time. We're celebrating the sheep shearing. And this is what you do. This is what you do for good luck. Isn't it ridiculous the ways that we find to justify our immorality? You're going to come home to your wife? Oh, no, no, it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't for romance, baby. It was, it was worship. It was religious. When she knows that, and so she's going to try and get his attention. Again, this is more commodification of sex and marriage, do you see? And she says, well, what are you going to pay me? He says, a young goat. Remember, at this point, they didn't use coinage mostly. Your wealth was measured in the animals that you had. And she says, well, I, I'm going to need some collateral basically so she says i want your staff i want your seal and i want your cord the staff of course was not just a shepherd's crook but it was a mark of authority the seal would have been either a ring but most likely at this time they used these cylinders that were about this long and you would roll them in the wax and that would have your seal on it and the cord was you'd wear it around the neck so she's asking for for really two and then the cord that binds them together maybe that was a mark of authority as well she's asking for identification essentially you need these things. I'll hold on to them to make sure you come back and you pay me. And of course, he has sexual relations with her. She becomes pregnant and she goes home. He sends his buddy Hira. This guy keeps coming back. He, he must have been a really bad influence on Judah. Sure seems to me. He comes back to pay her, and it's interesting, I forget the exact words, but they use two different words for a prostitute here. The first time they see her and they think she was a prostitute, it just means the common word for a woman of the night. But then when he goes back and starts looking for her, he uses the formal term to describe a, a temple priestess or cult prostitute. So they're almost trying to put a good spin on it. Right? No, I wasn't just a, it wasn't just a hooker, it was a religious thing. And so he's looking for her, and they can't find her. And we don't have any of that going on here, pal. And they need to find her because she's got his stuff. But he says, you know what? We made every effort to try and find her. And if we just make this you know, known around the, the country, I'm going to be laughed at. Which is, of course, ironic if you know how this story ends. But this is the, the ultimate act of commodification here. Tamar sells her body to gain something, and Judah buys it without even caring who she is. He is able to have sex with this woman and not even know who she is. Not even recognize her. 
And it would not have been that long. And there are some who want to justify Tamar here and say that she was in the right for doing this because she was perhaps trying to make sure the messianic line didn't pass away or trying to make sure that he fulfilled his leveret responsibilities. Later on, Judah is going to say she is more righteous than me. But there's a difference between being more righteous than somebody else and being righteous at all. So what she did is not as bad as what Judah did, but I I really, tempting somebody else to sin, and especially something like this where you're going to place your your father-in-law in in a position like this, not a good thing. So that kind of made me uncomfortable reading some of those, those things. And even though God does use the result as we're going to see, That's God's grace. That's not God's approval. Do you understand the difference? Sometimes God gives us grace and says, I'm going to do something good through the wicked thing you did. God is not going to approve the wicked thing. Sin does not justify sin. You did this to me, therefore I'm justified in doing that. That's not how it works. What sin does is it generates more sin. When you sin, the next person's going to sin, and then the next person's going to sin. It escalates, and it leads unto death. Proverbs 31.3, a little lesson for somebody like Judah, says, Do not give your strength to women or your ways to those who destroy kings. Bathsheba wrote that for her son Solomon. We're going to look at both sides of this here, but Judah is not acting wisely. He's not acting righteously. He gives his authority, his strength, his power over to this woman and ends up losing it. And later on, we're going to see not only did he lose the symbol of his authority, he lost probably any actual authority and respect that he had among his people. Men, when you let your body do the thinking for you, you're going to lose your strength. You're going to lose your authority, just like Samson. He didn't do it right. He just wanted to please his body, and he ended up losing his strength. And for women, this is the trend these days. Men have been so awful, we are justified in being as promiscuous as we like. That is not right. That is so not right. And we need to have it said and have it said loud. And the world, it's a strange thing how the world does it. Because it all amounts to people being able to do whatever you want. And you've got this crowd over here that decries the way that men have treated women and how they've acted sexually. And then over here you've got men who are decrying women and the way they've acted sexually and decrying them. And it goes back and forth and nobody gets any more righteous because of it. The Bible tells us how to do it. And like I said a few weeks ago, it's the entire Canaanite system that's got to be broken. It's not about fixing this part or that part. There comes a point where your car has been tinkered with enough times, it's time to get a new one. Or your refrigerator or whatever it is. You need a new one. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we are to delight in our spouse. It says, you all should be so happy together, not just in your relationship emotionally and spiritually, but even physically and sexually, that you are not tempted to go somewhere else. That it's the husband's responsibility to take care of his wife in that way, and it's the wife's responsibility to take care of her husband in that way. The other option that Paul says is to be celibate. And there is nothing that is less honorable about being celibate before the Lord in relation to marriage, I should say. When we treat each other like objects... You are cheapening the most beautiful thing that your body was created to do. And as men and women, we we have influence over one another. Men, your, your strength, the things that you can provide, the things that you can do for your wife or for the woman that you're with is an attractive thing for her. And she desires that and she wants that. And there are men that will use that to get something from her sexually with no intention of ever actually delivering it. And women, y'all know, from Eve all the way down, y'all have power over the men in your life. Your beauty is a God-given thing, and it must be used for the glory of God and to better your husband, the man in your life. Like we're going to read about Ruth later on, another story that might make us uncomfortable, but she at least did it right. It's remarkable how the Lord does that. We devalue ourselves when we are just treating each other as objects to be used. Neither one of them comes out of this story looking good. We felt bad for Tamar, and now we're not quite as compassionate as we were before. And you could say, well, she had no other option. Yeah, she did. Joseph 
would prefer to go to prison and to stay in prison than to allow himself to be compromised. He's going to set us a better example. But when you do things like this, it's only a matter of time until it all crashes. So let's look at verse 24 and down to verse 26 now. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality or harlotry. Is how you could translate that. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So eventually, of course, Tamar's pregnancy shows. After three months, she's going to have twins, as we're going to see. So people notice. And word reaches Judah. Remember, she's staying in her father's house. So word gets back. Hey, this woman who is betrothed to your son is pregnant, almost like we see Mary later on, although it was a much different situation. But look at Judah. Doesn't he look like, like the most obnoxious person in this story? He's going to call her out. He's been fooling around with prostitutes, and now he finds out that this woman has been engaging in prostitution. She deserves to be burned. It's like David in 2 Samuel 12. Remember, Nathan comes up and tells him the story about the sheep. You know, somebody stole his neighbor's lamb and cooked it for dinner, David. What do you think we should do? Off with his head! And he's like, you're that guy. You stole your, your friend's wife and killed him. And David, of course, repented. But it's, it's the same kind of thing. He's such a hypocrite. He calls her out for death by burning, which even in the Bible, in the law of Moses, there were only two sins that merited that. One of them was when a man committed sexual immorality with his mother-in-law. They both were to be burned. And then in chapter 21, verse 9, it tells us that if the daughter of a priest committed certain sins... So this was a very rare thing in Scripture. In fact, if we're going to talk about the law, Leviticus 20, verse 12, says that if they both were caught in this sin under the law of Moses, they both were to be killed. Because God doesn't look at it as, well, that's just the way men are, and she should know better. Nor do they come out and say, well, that's just the way women are, and men should know better. It's like, nah, you're both wrong. God does not permit us to show favoritism in matters of righteousness and justice whether that's to men or to women. That's where that whole debate gets, in, gets really messed up, doesn't it? You've got the feminists hollering over here, and you've got the weird MGTOW guys over here, and they're all hollering about, the other people are doing it wrong. The Lord's like, you're, you're both crazy. Do it right. We don't get to show favoritism to the weak, or to the strong, or to the poor, or to the rich, or to the sojourner, or to the citizen. We don't get to do that in God's world. And the Lord made that very clear here in Hosea chapter 4. The Lord said, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. You say, oh, why is that? He says, because the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God's like, don't come to me and pray, Lord, what are we going to do? Our daughters are committing all this sexual sin. He goes, you're doing the same thing, fellas. I'm not doing a thing for you. So when you come to God and you're asking for him to fix that person and you're engaging in the same sin, God's like, I'm not going to hear this. Get out of my courtroom. I don't recognize your right to come in and bring this before me. And this is how God's going to allow this to play out. Let her be burned. She goes, well, if you want to know who the father is, do you know who these are? And to his credit, Judah recognizes his own sin here. Because what had he done? He had condemned her to a perpetual widowhood. Why, why didn't he just initiate what would have amounted to a divorce at this point? He said, you are now free to go marry somebody else. Why had he not given her to Shelah, which is what he was supposed to do? Meanwhile, he's out there, his wife dies, but he's able to get over it and move on and do whatever he wants with his body. Meanwhile, she's got to stay over here. It wasn't fair. And it probably was the case that he sees this as, oh, good, we can burn her, and then Shelah can marry whoever he wants. What was it Jesus said in Matthew 7? Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? This is like the illustration of that, in my opinion. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. Can you hear Jesus saying that? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Let her be burned. It's like... What about you, pal? You're the one that started all this mess. 
Well, what she did was evil. Yeah, but you're the one that set it up for her to be evil. Why did you push her to that place? Moses said in Numbers 32, your sin will find you out. Don't play games with that. God sees what you're doing. And so, of course, she is not killed. And it says there that he did not know her again. The idea is they did not resume an incestuous relationship after this. Judah, of course, did not know what was going on. But it's almost as if they decided, all right, we're just going to call it even at this point. And, of course, now he knows that she's pregnant with his sons. This is one of those times. This is what happens with sin. And I'm not going to go off on this because this is a whole message on its own. Sin brings you to a place where there's no good solution. You're put into these situations. What does the Bible say about this? The Bible said don't do that in the first place. You know, and sometimes as people, we are left to handle situations the best we can, prayerfully and as humbly as we can, and hope that the Lord is going to be merciful to us. Later on, Ezra is going to have the, the men who married foreign wives put their wives away and divorce them. And we say, I thought the Lord hated divorce. Like, yeah, but God also hated the fact that the children of Israel were carried away by this kind of stuff. And they were in the situation they weren't supposed to be in, so how do we handle it? Similar, I, this is what I do when people ask me about, well, was it right for Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor, to plot to kill Hitler? It's like, well, normally no, but I mean, look at the situation they were in. Well, what were they supposed to do in a situation like that? You might not have done the same thing, but sometimes we're, we're, all we can do is just step out in faith and say, Lord, if I'm wrong, will you redirect me? That's what sin does. When you're put into a sinful situation, sometimes you just got to do the best you can and try your best not to sin anymore. Let's bring it to the end now. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Tamar has twins, and her twins have a lot of interesting parallels to the previous set of twins we saw, which were Jacob and Esau. The twins struggle during the birth. Remember, Jacob caught Esau's heel. The oldest one is associated with red, the red thread, and then Esau, of course, was called the red man, Edom. And the youngest is the one who's going to take the pride of place. Just some interesting parallels there. This is God's grace at work here. God is restoring to Judah the two sons that he had lost. And he's restoring to her the dignity of her motherhood. Tamar is one of only four women, other than Mary, of course, who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The other three were Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. All of them were foreigners. All of them were under questionable situations. But they were all saved by grace through faith. Isn't that awesome? This woman and her children are going to be in the line of Jesus Christ. God is using her to illustrate his incredible mercy and forgiveness. They're just 10 generations away from the birth of David. Maybe that's a significant number. So the Lord forgives her and blesses her in spite of all this. And now let's take a look at Judah. Judah, the one who had sold his brother into slavery. Slavery is bad enough, but you're going to take your brother and sell him into slavery? He was the one that was a friend of the Canaanites, who married a Canaanite. He was the sexual deviant. He was the liar. He was the hypocrite. He's going to become the father of David and later of Jesus Christ, who is called the lion of the tribe of what? Judah. There's some Hebrew tradition in the book of Jubilees that tells us that Judah at this moment wept and prayed for forgiveness. And I, for one, believe that that's exactly what happened, even though that's not in Scripture. Because you know what's going to happen later? And this is my favorite part of this story. Judah has sold his brother into slavery, watched his father be bereft of his child. Now Judah has gone through this situation. He's lost children. And he has shown himself to be a foolish, sinful man. And later on, when he and his brothers encounter Joseph... Judah is going to be the one who offers himself to Joseph and said, let me be a slave and send Benjamin back. Because he says, I do not want my father to go through the same thing that I went through in losing my children. I can't put him through that again. 
He's the one that confesses everything that they had done to Joseph. And doubtless, this moment prepared him for that. When you're broken and your sin is laid out for the whole world to see, you can be either hardened by that and made cynical, or you can change and the Lord will totally restore your life. And I believe that's what happened to Judah. Because he is going to surpass his father. Later on in this story, even at the end of his life, Israel is kind of a grumpy old man. But Judah is going to be the one who receives the blessing. And his tribe will become the greatest tribe in all of Israel. And I, one commentator put it this way, Judah represents the best and the worst of the family of Israel. At their worst, they were selling their own brother into slavery, but at their best, they were willing to show grace and mercy and offer themselves and repent and ask for forgiveness. He's a great lesson for all of us in that. And this is how I want to end this story. We, we talked a lot about all the wickedness that the world gets into and the way that the pressures come upon us as Christians to treat our bodies in this way. And sometimes, in various degrees, Christians fall into these things. But you know what? First John chapter 1 says this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's important, right? So, well, I, I've got saved, but then I sinned. John's like, yeah, if you were to come in to me and say, I got saved, I've never sinned since then. He goes, you're a liar or you're fooling yourself. But if we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you love that? If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Well, yeah, that first time, but never after that. No. I'll forgive you this once, but never again. Is that Jesus Christ? I don't think so. If you've treated your body like a commodity, I'm not here to condemn you, but I'm here to call you to repent like Judah and Tamar did. Now, they were brought to a place where they were stuck and they were exposed publicly, but the good news is you don't have to get there. You can do this on your own and let the Lord cleanse you and repent and ask for forgiveness and God will give it to you because everything that you deserve, Tamar maybe deserved to die, probably so did Judah at this point. But Jesus Christ took all of that on the cross for us. Isn't that awesome? All the penalty that you deserved, Jesus took all of that. And now he offers forgiveness freely. And God will treat you like you never sinned before. He's willing to wipe the slate clean like he did here with Judah and Tamar. He's willing to pour out grace on your life and produce something out of it that you never would have expected. He'll empower you to live differently by your Holy Spirit if you will repent and believe. Like I believe Judah did, his whole life would be transformed from this time. Because remember, the timeline is about the same. Joseph was in Egypt for about 20 years. And if he's having children who are coming to be married age, probably about the same time. So Judah probably had this experience not long before he went to see Joseph. And because he was broken over his sin and said, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to live righteously like we're supposed to. When the next big moment came, he was ready to step up and show incredible leadership. And God is going to bless him for that despite his sin. Don't we serve a gracious, loving, forgiving God?